to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Well now as we come to the beginning of chapter 7 of Hebrews this evening, let me remind you briefly of the overall purpose of the epistle, which we have been seeing so constantly is to set before us the unique and supreme glory of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of men. We have noticed how several times over in this epistle we are invited to consider him. Chapter 3, verse 1, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 3, consider him who has endured such contradiction of, of sinners against himself. Now the word consider means simply to ponder, to weigh well, to look diligently at someone or something. And that is what the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews is urging us to do. And you'll realize that he is urging us to do this in the context of his concern for these weak Believers in danger, as it seems, of slipping back or sliding away. What is it that they need above all, he says? It is to ponder the glories of a crucified, risen, and exalted Redeemer, in John Newton's words. This is what God is urging upon us in this epistle. And there is nothing that is designed for the benefit and restoration of the souls of God's people like pondering the glories of the Redeemer. And this is why he exalts the Lord Jesus. Now that exhortation at the beginning of chapter 3, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, is really a kind of index for the next few chapters of the epistle. The apostle and high priest of our confession or profession is how he describes Jesus. And in chapters 3 and 4, he sets out the supreme glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as our apostle. The one sent from God, as we've been finding in John's gospel. Jesus' favorite description for himself is the one who has been sent from the Father. He is the one whom God the Father has sent as his apostle into the world. He is compared then with Moses and with Joshua in chapters 3 and 4 as God's supreme apostle. And then from chapter 4 verse 14, the apostle turns to the superiority of Jesus as our great high priest. Uh, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. And in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, he shows us how Christ fulfilled all that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament priesthood of Aaron's line. And he is, in other words, the reality of which the Levitical priesthood, that's the Old Testament priesthood, was the shadow. But now in chapter 5, verse 10, you may recollect, or 11, he goes on to point out that Jesus' priesthood is of a totally different order and kind from the Old Testament Aaronic priesthood, that is, from the Levitical priesthood, which in the law had to belong to the tribe and family of Levi. And this priesthood of Jesus is of an altogether different kind from theirs. 
And in chapter 5, verse 10, he cites Psalm 110, where the messianic priesthood is spoken of as after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 5, uh, verse 6, rather, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, he is then going to go on to expound to us the nature of this priesthood of Jesus. Let me just pause for a moment to press upon you the importance of this doctrine, because the idea of expounding at length on Jesus as our great high priest is not a rather distant and academic question or something that's of interest to Jews only. It's a very interesting thing that if you look up the Vulgate translation of the New Testament, the Latin word for high priest, there are two words in Latin for priest. One is the one from which we get our word sacerdotal, and the other is the word pontifex for high priest. Now, it's a very interesting thing that the word pontifex probably means, broken down, a maker of bridges. Now, that's a very significant thing because this is precisely what the priest in Israel does. He is a maker of that most fundamental of all bridges in the world, the bridge between man and God. And the significance of having a high priest given to us by God is that he has come to establish a bridge between man and God, and to do that thing which man, whatever else he thinks in the world he most needs, he certainly needs beyond all else, and that is to draw near to God. There is nothing in the whole universe, you see, that man needs more than this. His fundamental need is to draw near to God, because that's what he was made for. Everything in his life is out of sorts if he hasn't drawn near to God. And at every stage in his life, this is what he needs. This is what the believer needs. This is what the redeemed people of God need. They need to draw near to God. But you see, sinful men cannot draw near to God. They discover that they are unable to draw near to God. And the reason is that they cannot because there is no bridge from where they are to where God is. And all the attempts in the Old Testament, you see, at building bridges that the high priest sought to build from man to God failed. And the people found themselves going away from the Day of Atonement with an uncleansed conscience still unable to come into the presence of God. And this is the background against which the writer of the epistle expounds to us on the glories of Jesus as the supreme, perfect, and effectual high priest. Now he is about to tell us this in relation to this rather strange figure of Melchizedek. And I suppose that uh, with a, a great and human touch, he recognizes that immediately he mentions this man Melchizedek and says, I have much to say to you about Melchizedek. He realizes many of them are going to say, oh gracious me, he's often one of these frightful tacks again. And we'll all just turn off until he gets back. So he says in verse 11, about this, we have much to say which is hard to explain. 
since you have become dull of hearing. And then he goes on to the section that we have been studying recently, which speaks of the need for us to develop an appetite for strong meat and not just for milk, which belongs to babyhood. And in chapter 7 at verse 1, he returns to the theme, which he has told us in chapter 5, verse 11, that he wants to speak about, but it is hard to explain, and it's the truth about Jesus' priesthood in relation to Melchizedek. Now that parenthesis that uh, lasts from chapter 5, 11 to the end of chapter 6, really, is important because the apostle is emphasizing that all this somewhat complicated truth about Christ's priesthood is the very anchor for the souls of God's people of which he has been speaking at the end of the sixth chapter. Jesus has gone into heaven as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it is all that is involved in Jesus' high priestly ministry that makes him today the anchor for our souls in the presence of the Father. So in chapter 7, verse 1, he takes up again the theme of Melchizedek. And I hope that you will not uh, either go to sleep or switch off when we launch out now on Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a rather mysterious figure. His name itself uh, tends to turn you off a little bit, I would imagine. He appears only twice in the Old Testament. Once in the psalm, which is quoted frequently in this epistle, Psalm 110, and once in Genesis chapter 14. I wonder if you can remember, those of you who were with us when we were studying Genesis, back to the 14th chapter of Genesis, where we have the story of how four confederate kings, led by a man who had the even stranger name of Chedorly Omar, and Chedorly Omar and three of his friends went against the area around the city of Sodom and captured the city of Sodom at the time when Abraham's nephew Lot was living in Sodom and took a host of captives away, amongst them Lot. Now Abraham, who had never been a soldier, and had never known anything about warfare so far as we know, he gathered his servants together, armed them, and pursued these fellows, and off they went after them, overtook them, and overwhelmed them too. And Abraham had a surprise attack, and the Lord was with him, and Chedorly Omer and his confederates were defeated. And uh, Abraham came back with all the captives and with the spoils of the battle. And when he came back, do you, of course you remember it so well, he was met with uh, the vision of the king of Sodom coming out to see him. And the king of Sodom went to make a bargain with Abraham and said to him, If you give me the captives, you can keep the spoil for yourself. And Abraham, you remember, told him he had vowed a vow that he would not touch one morsel of this plunder. And who had he vowed to? In whose presence had he vowed? Well, before he met the king of Sodom, he had met somebody else. He had met none other than Melchizedek, the strange figure. And when Abraham met him, Melchizedek had a certain relationship with Abraham, which is expanded here in the seventh chapter of Hebrews. 
Melchizedek is here set forth as the true shadow of Jesus' high priesthood. And interestingly, the apostle tells us in Hebrews 7, first of all, what scripture says about Melchizedek, and then, interestingly, what scripture doesn't say about him. And he deduces certain things which are important by telling us these two things. What scripture says about Melchizedek, and then what scripture says nothing about concerning him. First of all, whatever else we know about him, and we know only from these two appearances in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, we know that he is both a king and a priest. This Melchizedek, verse 1, king of Salem, that's probably uh, an abbreviation of Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. He is both a king and a priest then. Indeed, he is a king in two senses. He is a king by reason of the area over which he ruled, you notice. He is the king of Salem. That's at the end of verse 2. He is also king of Salem. That is, king of peace. But he is a king by reason of the name which he is called. The name Melchizedek in um, verse 2, halfway through the verse, means king of righteousness. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, these two titles together give us a clue to the significance of Melchizedek. There are two names which are given to the Messiah and two marks of the Messiah and one is righteousness he is the righteous branch he is the Lord our righteousness and the other is peace he is the prince of peace and the government is going to rest upon his shoulder he is both king and he is priest but he is a king of righteousness and a king of peace. And Melchizedek's priesthood is therefore a royal priesthood. And what the writer of the Epistle of the Hebrews wants to press upon us is that here in the Old Testament is this mysterious shadowy figure who represents in shadow what Jesus shows us in reality for the first time a royal priest. Now, there never had been a king who was also a priest. The two offices were separated. But here in Melchizedek, they are brought together. And here in Melchizedek, the two great marks of the Messiah are brought together. The righteousness and peace. In him, righteousness and peace kiss each other. And in Melchizedek, you get these two marks of the Messiah brought together. He is a royal priest then, and that's his first significance. His second significance is that he is without father or mother, beginning or end, verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Now that's a significant thing, and incidentally it's a lesson in the fact that what scripture does not say is often very important. 
It's a very important thing to notice what scripture omits and does not speak to us about, as well as what scripture does say and teaches us in detail. Somebody was saying to me uh, the other day, um, a man I was speaking to who um, is in a university in England and he has been appointing candidates to a post. And he said to me, you know, I suppose you write references quite a lot. He said, I'm much more interested in what people do not say in references than what they do say. He said, you can often tell a great deal more from what a man misses out than what he puts in. Now, that's a parallel to the same thing. It's an important thing to notice what Scripture does not say about him. Now, the argument that the Apostle to the Hebrews is using here is precisely this. He says, in a sphere in Genesis, for example, where everybody has a genealogy, Adam, the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of Abraham. You get generations given all the time. Everybody has their pedigree. Melchizedek comes onto the scene without any kind of genealogy, without a note of his birth, without any note of his death. Now the significant thing is this, that Genesis says nothing about Melchizedek's beginning or his end, although obviously... He stands in scripture as a man and clearly did have most probably a normal birth and a normal death. The important thing is that he is a symbol. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews is using as a shadow of the reality which is represented in Christ's eternal priesthood. So he wants to show us not only the royal priesthood of Christ, that he was a king as well as a priest, but the eternal priesthood of Christ, without beginning or without end, the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, who according to his human generation did have a birth and a death, but according to his generation as the Son of God, has neither beginning nor ending. His is an eternal priesthood, never passed on to anybody else, never ending, because he is an eternal priest. Now, this is the significance of this particular comment on Melchizedek. And his priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, is a shadow of which the priesthood of Jesus is a reality. And you will notice in verses 16 and 17, for instance, how this is emphasized Melchizedek has become a priest not according to a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, that is of Jesus, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In verse 24, it says of Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Well then, in verses 4 to 10, the author elaborates the greatness of Melchizedek. And all the time, we are to remember that it is not Melchizedek he means to exalt, but Christ. What he is saying to us in Philip Hughes' words in his commentary on Hebrews, which I've been commending to you, is this. If Melchizedek, who was a sign and shadow, is preferred to Abraham and all the Levitical priests, how much more Christ, who is the truth and substance. So he is using Melchizedek, as it were, 
as a foundation, as John Owen says, on which to build the glory of Jesus. Now that's how Melchizedek comes into this picture at all. Well, verse 4 says, See how great he is in the RSV, or consider how great this man was, the authorized version. The superiority of Melchizedek is demonstrated in two main ways. First, by comparison with Abraham, and then by comparison with Aaron and his priesthood. First, by comparison with Abraham from verse 4. Abraham was, of course, to the Jew, the greatest figure of the whole of the Old Testament. And the account of his meeting with Melchizedek is significant for this reason, as the author of Hebrews interprets that 14th chapter of Genesis. The significance is that Melchizedek is the one who appears to be greater than Abraham. And he does so for two main reasons. First of all, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Notice this in verse 4. See how great he is. Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tithe of the spoils. Now the significance of that is in verse 5. Those descendants of Levi, that is those who are the priests according to the tribe they belong to, who receive the priestly office of a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brethren, though these also are descended from Abraham. And what he is arguing is simply this, that for Abraham to pay tithes to Melchizedek is to recognize Melchizedek's superiority because there is a principle that the tithe is paid from the inferior to the superior. Now you get exactly the same lesson learned from the fact in verse 6 towards the end that Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. And it's spelled out here, this man who has not their genealogy received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now look at verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So the significance of Abraham's being blessed by Melchizedek is that this figure of Melchizedek is exalted above the greatest figure the Jews knew who was the figure of Abraham, the patriarch, the man to whom they traced their ancestry, the one by whom they knew God as the God of Abraham. And yet Melchizedek is being placed in a position more exalted than he. So by comparison with Melchizedek's, uh, with, with Abraham, Melchizedek is superior. Do you notice also he goes on to speak of the superiority of this priesthood of Melchizedek to Aaron's priesthood, that is to the priesthood of the tribe of Levi. In verse 8, uh, here tithes are received uh, by mortal men, there by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes, that is the Levitical priests receive tithes from the people, they paid tithes 
In Abraham, now you see the picture of the solidarity of a people that's given here. Abraham, as the representative figure of the whole of Israel, is paying tithes to Melchizedek. And in his loins, as it were, because they saw the whole race gathered up in Abraham, they were paying tithes to Melchizedek. So he is demonstrating the superiority of the order of Melchizedek to the Levitical priesthood. Now, this simple fact about Melchizedek is used to show us something of enormous practical importance concerning Christ, that the Melchizedek priesthood was one of whom it is testified that he lives and goes on living. It is testified that Melchizedek is without beginning or without ending. Now, in verses 24 and 25, do you notice how this is applied to Jesus? He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And he is building up an argument to the superiority of Christ from the superiority of Melchizedek. Now in verses 11 to 19, the writer sets out the imperfections of this Levitical priesthood. He has shown the superiority of, Abra of, of Melchizedek over the Levitical priesthood. They paid tithes in Abraham to Melchizedek. Now he shows the imperfections of the Levitical priesthood. And in verse 11... He very effectively demolishes the idea that God intended the Old Testament priest's activity to be the ultimate mediator between God and man. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable, that is a perfect salvation. If a perfect salvation had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now do you see his argument? It is when you come into the Psalms and to Psalm 110 for example, a messianic psalm, and we read about the Messiah that he is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He says, what need would there have been for God to raise up another priest, another order of priesthood altogether, if it had been possible to find a perfect salvation by the Levitical priests? It is because it is impossible for salvation to have been procured through their outward man-made sacrifice that God is promising here in Psalm 110, the priesthood that is to come in Christ. So there is a very effective argument that he uses. How would God have promised another priesthood if the priesthood of the Levites were to have been satisfactory? Now, since the priesthood was instituted under the Mosaic law, he goes on to tell us that it was part of that law and the change in priesthood involved a change in law. 
Now you notice this in verse 11. The parenthesis in the RSB says if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change, verse 12, in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Now do you see what he is saying? Many of these Jews, you see, found it difficult to see in Jesus God's supreme high priest and therefore God's supreme way of salvation because they recognized that in the law there was only one tribe from which the priest could come who would put them right with God. And that was the tribe of Levi. But Jesus belonged not to the tribe of Levi, but to the tribe of Judah. And this is the question which he is settling for them in that passage from verse 11 to 14. He says, it is evident, verse 14, that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. How then does Jesus come to be the supreme and perfect high priest? How is he the fulfillment of the Old Testament, you see? If we say we have a biblical gospel and that Jesus is the reality of which the Old Testament is the shadow, that he is the fulfillment of which the Old Testament is the promise, then how can he fulfill the Old Testament when it said the only tribe from which a priest may come is the tribe of Levi? Well, says the epistle to the Hebrews, because God promised a different order of priesthood, not a fleshly order, not an order that belongs to the law, but the order that belongs to a new covenant, the covenant of grace, of whom Melchizedek is the shadow. And you look now, not for somebody coming from the tribe of Levi, but for a king and a priest. And when the wise men came asking, where is he that is born king? They were asking for this Messiah who was the priest God had anointed and sealed to be the one who would make men able to draw near to God. This is the significance of it. The one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. So in verses 12 to 19, the apostle is telling us that two things had been set aside in Christ. One is an ineffective priesthood. Now that is the basic thing one has to say about all that is in the Old Testament priesthood. It was an ineffective priesthood. Why? Because it could not bring men to God. That was its basic problem. And the reason, of course, was simply that these priests were on the wrong side of the bridge. They were on the side where they were dealing with their own sin. And they were unable to build the bridge to God because it crumbled due to their own weakness and ineffectiveness and sinfulness before they even got halfway. So an ineffective priesthood is being replaced by an effective priesthood, that is the priesthood of Christ. 
And what he is wanting to say to these Jews who had so often seen the ineffectiveness of other priestly activity is that in Christ you have the perfect priest because his priesthood is effective. He brings you to God. Now, beloved, that is what we have to say to the world, you see. But what God has done in Jesus Christ is he has swept away every other bridge building between God and men. And he has brought us to God in Jesus Christ. And that is the glory of Christ's priesthood. And that, incidentally, ought to be the evidence people see in our lives. They ought to see that we have been brought to God that we know him, that he is a reality to us, that this is not just academic argument, but that Jesus, our great high priest of whom we were singing, has brought me to God. And I know him, and am one with him, and can draw near to him, and have access to him. That's the glory of what God has done in Christ our high priest. And more than this, he has not only replaced an ineffective priesthood by an effective one. He has replaced an ineffective law by which he means the ceremonial rather than the moral law. In verses 18 and 19, he has replaced an ineffective law by an effective gospel. Look at verse 18. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, the law made nothing perfect. Now that is something that men and women in our generation need to learn. That's something that good, solid Kirk people in Scotland need to learn. The law never made any man perfect in the sight of God. It is not the deeds of the law that will ever bring you to God. And so all our law works are swept aside. And we are brought to a better hope, the end of verse 19, through which we draw near to God. Now I cannot emphasize to you too much that this drawing near to God, which is such a theme of the epistle to the Hebrews chapter 10 22 let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith this is the great business of life according to this apostle and it is not only the great business of life it will be the great business not only of time but of eternity now finally in verses 20 to 28 of this rather unfamiliar and difficult chapter, we have the threefold superiority of Christ's priesthood. Having set out the superiority of Melchizedek to every other figure in the Old Testament and established that God has promised a high priest who is after the order of Melchizedek and that the old priesthood is swept aside and the new order of priesthood in Christ is established by God, he now sets forth a threefold superiority of Christ's priesthood. Verses 20 to 22, it is superior because of the oath God swore. And it was not, verse 20, without an oath. 
Those who formerly became priests took their office without an oath, but this one was addressed with an oath. The Lord has sworn, now that's Psalm 110 again, and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now there, you see, is the superiority, the glory of the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has gone on oath concerning it. Now we have found already in this epistle in chapter 6 that God is prepared to go on oath about things which he longs that his people will really take to heart and believe and accept. He, unlike men, has no need to swear. He cannot swear by anyone higher than himself, but he swears by his name and he has gone on oath to say that he will not change his mind this is God's great high priest. And he sets his finger upon Jesus. Now this, says the apostle in verse 22, makes Jesus the surety or guarantee of a better covenant. And Jesus is the guarantor of this covenant that God has made that by his offering and sacrifice... By the shedding of his blood, he will bring men near to God, deal with their sins, take them from their banishment, and reconcile them to God. That's the covenant, a covenant of grace, of which Jesus is the guarantee. And God has, as it were, underwritten that guarantee with an oath. The Lord has sworn. It is, he is superior as high priest, secondly, because of the permanence of his priesthood, verses 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now the significance of this, you see, is that God has engaged himself eternally in Christ to bring men to himself by this unique way. Now Jesus' function as a high priest, therefore, is an eternal function. Do you notice, he was not high priest merely when he was on the cross offering up himself as a propitiation for our sins. He is now the high priest at the right hand of God the Father. And there are three places in this epistle where the apostle points to this ministry of the high priest. In chapter 2, verse 17, he speaks of Jesus as the high priest to make propitiation for our sins. He says he is a, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now that's his first function as high priest, to offer himself, not another offering, but he offered himself to God. Chapter 4, verse 15, he acts as a high priest also to bring understanding and help and succor to his children in the midst of weakness. Verse 15, we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sinning. Let us then with confidence draw near, do you notice it again, to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is Jesus' ministry as the high priest 
to succor his children, to bring them grace and help in times when they are supremely conscious of their weakness. And it is Jesus, my great high priest, to whom I apply in that situation. Now do you know, beloved, what to do in your weaknesses in days when the storms blow upon your life and you're conscious of weakness, in days when the devil is battering you in many different forms? Do you know what to do with these hours? Well, if you have pondered the glories of Jesus as the great high priest, you will know to come to him and to recognize that he is able to sympathize with us, understanding us as no one else in the universe can, and to take us in his arms and give us grace to help in our time of need. That is where we apply in these moments. But the third thing in this seventh chapter is that he is a high priest whose permanence as a high priest is most glorious to his children because he always lives to make intercession for them. He appears in the presence of God to bring the needs of his children when they are scarcely able to cry for themselves. Jesus, our great high priest, is at the right hand of his Father, there to make intercession for us now. Now, what does that mean? Can you think of that? Have you thought of this, that this is what our Lord Jesus' present ministry is? He not only has a past ministry on the cross and a future ministry when he returns in glory, he has a present ministry exalted at the Father's right hand where he is continually making intercession for his people. And oh, what, what a comfort this brings to God's people when they've grasped it, you see. This is what Jesus was trying to minister to Peter when he said to him, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but... Now, what was the thing that Jesus interposed as the but in that situation? Satan is trying to get hold of you, he says, to drag you through the mill in many different kinds of ways... But, now what was the but? But I have prayed for you that your faith faint not. And you look at John 17 and see our Lord Jesus there pleading with his Father for his people in the world. Oh, Father, he says, keep them. I have kept them in thy name. Now as I am coming to you, you keep them. I do not pray take them out of the world, but oh, keep them from the evil one. Do you know that the Lord Jesus is exercising that ministry now for you? Do you ever wonder why it is you say, where in the world did I get the strength from to go through that? Where did the resources come from to go through that situation when I didn't even feel able to pray? Well, they came because the Lord Jesus is a perpetual high priest whose ministry continues day and night. When he is pleading for you in the presence of his Father. And this is the superior glory of the Lord Jesus. Oh, what a thing it is not to have a Savior like that. And how glorious to have one who is at the Father's right hand this evening. But it's superior not only because of 
his permanence as a high priest and because of the oath of God, but because of the perfections of the Lord Jesus. Verses 26 to the end. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, unstained, separated from sinners, not in the sense that he kept himself aloof from sinners, because, of course, as we know from the Gospels, he did not. But he was in a different category from sinners. That's what he's saying. All the other high priests were in the same category. But Jesus was in a different category. Exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. And his perfections mean that he is a son at the end of verse 28. Who has been made perfect forever. You see we have a high priest who is holy, guileless, undefiled who therefore is able to concentrate. John Owen beautifully says, My Redeemer is able to concentrate on the sins and needs of his people because he has none of his own. Do you know how sometimes you feel in the midst of other people's lives and burdens and failures. You have enough failures of your own to be going on with. But our Lord Jesus is able to concentrate wholly on his people. And my dear Christian brother and sister, he is able to be free to concentrate wholly upon you as his child and to bear your needs before his Father. We bless God for such a Savior. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.